You're listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. The climate emergency will continue to bring fire, floods and extreme weather events all across the world. With over 100 fires burning in New South Wales alone, barely half of them are contained. At times, firefighters battling flames over 200 feet high. But not everyone is going to be affected in the same way. In looking at the impacts of Hurricane Katrina in 2005, the folks most impacted were people of color, women with children, disabled, and people living below the poverty line. 93% of people stranded and neglected were black. Communities that are white and wealthier are conventionally better resourced to deal with the ramifications of an increasingly unstable climate, while poorer communities, who often face overlapping crises, will be left more vulnerable. Let's turn to Pakistan now, where there are now fears of acute food shortages after the series of devastating floods have led to just over 1,200 deaths. I'm Jacob Campbell, broadcasting from the unceded lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation in the studios of 3CR in Nam, Melbourne. Today on Earth Matters, we'll be speaking with two young climate leaders about environmental racism and the intersections of human rights and climate change. I grew up in Western Sydney and I think being thrown into the climate movement was never really a choice. It always felt like an obligation to the people around me. Grace Vegasana is the Climate and Racial Justice Director at the Australian Youth Climate Coalition. I remember sitting in a training session. We were talking about climate refugees and learning about the different climate impacts that exist. And I felt like the people who were running it, who had no disrespect to them, but they were white and were kind of talking about it in quite a detached way from thinking about climate refugees as people who were like far, far away at that point in time, um, who were feeling the impacts of climate change, um, made me feel quite isolated in that room where I was forced to reconcile with my own history with migration as a third culture kid and the way that my family would have been refugees. Um from climate change if we hadn't left Botswana when we did. And it made me really deeply reflect on the internal climate refugees that exist, like our family living back in Botswana, living a kilometre away from an open-cut copper mine, having that dust blow into town every day and the cancer it caused across the town. And so I think when we think about things like climate refugees or climate-induced migration, it's also thinking about how many people who have moved earlier than just the impacts hitting then and there and so many of those people are in western sydney um whether they moved directly because of displacement due to climate change whether they moved and their family and friends overseas are feeling those impacts i think there is just a huge community um of people living in western sydney whose friends families communities overseas are really seeing the impacts here and now um and those voices has been historically left out of the conversation when we talk about climate change. I'd love to hear 
a little bit more about this concept of environmental racism because I don't think it's um, a word that gets used a lot in the the discourse around climate change but perhaps you can tell us a bit more about what it is um, and how it affects those communities that you were talking about before. Effectively environmental racism looks at the way that different marginalized communities based on race are impacted by environmental inequity and climate change and why it's happening And so there's a lot of different ways that we can look at environmental racism, whether that's the physical attributes of people being um, forced into more unsafe areas or unsafe housing because of gentrification, where wealthier communities typically have the um, means to advocate for themselves, whether that's political connections, donation to lobbying groups, Uh, neighbourhood protections that actually push people of colour and First Nations people out of traditionally climate-safe areas uh, that face a less risk from climate disaster. And so that combines with a lot of different other aspects like colonisation and capitalism um, and these big concepts that play out in very clear practices of people not being able to find housing in safer areas but it also happens within the climate movement. And so there are different levels of environmental racism that exists. Um, I think kind of working backwards from a really big picture frame, there's the institutional and structural pieces of environmental uh, racism within the climate movement where historically campaigns that have been run for uh, conservation, for example, work to actually displace First Nations people off their country and off their land who, in the name of kind of protecting that area and removing human intervention when actually First Nations people uh, have been looking after and caring for country since time immemorial. And so there's those sort of like policies and practices and the institution that uphold racist policies and these practices that exist. There's That's amplified by historical lack of... Um, land ownership um, by First Nations people due to dispossession. There's exploitative labour and wage conditions as well. And so it's lots and lots of different practices that exist that climate change actually just amplifies and makes worse. Um, Going down into a little bit deeper, there's the interpersonal lenses that um, have interactions between people, whether that's face-to-face or in our post-COVID world, um, more online, uh, where that's systematic discrimination that exists. And this can look like different racist acts and microaggressions um, carried out from one person to another person. Um, This can look like having really white spaces in the climate movement, which has definitely gotten better over time, but is not a completely solved issue, I would say. Um, but that can look like little things like, for example, when I was working on the Stop Adani campaign for a number of years, um, that has come back into the spotlight this week. Um, there was many times when you would talk to people in the community on the street, um, door knocking about the Adani campaign. And the first thing that comes out of their mind is like, oh yeah, the Indian billionaire that's exploiting like our Australian land. And it was just like the immediate framing that is used 
by the climate movement that is actually quite harmful as opposed to thinking of the fossil fuel industry as a harmful industry in itself, exploiting land um, and exploiting resources. Um, and so it's like the attachment of race to uh, a concept or a company that then uh, attaches to other racist concepts, which are often pushed by conservative communities and News Corp. And so, yeah, there's those pieces of like interpersonal little bits of edging away people's want to be around other people and campaign on issues close to their heart. Um, there's the internalised pieces of environmental racism within the climate movement, the little subtle and overt messages uh, that create those pieces. Um, again, coming back to a Stop Adani example, I remember being in a campaign meeting when we were discussing different messaging pieces and it was everyone in the room was kind of white except for myself and one other person and we were listening to all of these tactics um, that were like very problematic and we were like ah we should really say something but the internalized belief that it's literally on you to have to kind of carry um, so many pieces of the climate movement away from little racist messaging points uh, can be a lot to put on some people um, who are already a minority in that group and so I think there's internalized pieces of whether I actually belong here do I actually want to be doing this work am I worthy of speaking up about this thing so there's just like lots of different layers of environmental racism from the physical attributes to the internal dynamics within a movement um, and I think the climate movement has a long way to go but it really does need to foster the beautiful space that exists um, where First Nations people are leading on issues of their own on climate justice. There's people of colour fighting for climate justice. There's different demographics within that, whether that's South Asian people um, working on that specifically now. Um, there's people from religious backgrounds working on climate justice and so very much fostering the positive communities that exist to be able to unpack and build their own spaces that really need to be happening to be leading and claiming narratives of their own. Wow, thank you so much for that answer that covered so much ground. I guess moving on to the next question around um, this phrase, there is no climate justice without racial justice, which I've heard uh, at some of the more progressive movements and protests and things. Tell us a bit about what this um, phrase actually means and how kind of the two movements uh, for racial justice and climate justice are tied together. So climate justice and racial justice are inherently linked because of the disproportionate impacts that First Nations and people of colour feel by the impacts of climate change. And that's also tied by who actually has done the most to cause climate change and who feels the most by the impacts of climate change and those are inherently really disproportionate in the way that they're dealt out. And so you'll often notice that it's global north country, so our countries who we traditionally would have called potentially developed countries um, who are producing and exporting and um using a lot of fossil fuels um, and then the people who are feeling the impacts of climate change are traditionally in the global south 
Um, so countries like Turkey and Syria who are currently feeling the impacts of climate disasters with the nexus dynamics of uh, war and desertification and huge influx of people movement uh, due to kind of um, other external forces as well. And so you're seeing the global south actually grappling with a lot of issues all at once as opposed to um, one form of climate disaster kind of happening and the country standing still to deal with that problem. And so, yeah, there is this notion of climate, no climate justice without racial justice, and that kind of represents a vision of um, looking at the compounding impacts of colonisation, of capitalism, of the patriarchy and how that impacts people in the ways that they're intimately impacted in their own everyday life, but how people such as First Nations people have been feeling the impacts for um, 250 plus years um, since colonisation and since extraction started. And so, yeah, this is very much about looking at a fairer and just world in the context of so much more than just climate change and climate action. It's actually looking at climate justice and what that represents to actually find these holistic justice-centred climate solutions in communities and particularly in communities of colour is what I work on. So looking at the different ways that people are experiencing climate change, whether that's extreme heat, flooding, uh, bushfires, um, there's just so many different ways that I think on this continent we're seeing uh, people being thrust into the front lines of this crisis. And so creating an intersectional climate movement is very much core to having climate justice because it means that uh, communities that work for the people who are being hit the hardest means that we all actually benefit from those solutions. You're listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. We just heard from Grace Vegasana from the Australian Youth Climate Coalition. The Philippines is one of the most vulnerable countries uh, for climate change. We experience about 20 typhoons a year. A quarter of that is very um, has very bad impacts. Uh, so it can be considered as disastrous events. Leah Mai Torres is the executive director of the Center for Environmental Concerns, an environmental advocacy organization working to protect ecosystems in the Philippines. So the damages for extreme weather events uh, accounts for about $3 billion a year. So imagine that for a very poor country. So just one typhoon can cost us um, millions of pesos worth of damage or about 10,000 of US dollars worth of damage. So um, the most affected sectors actually are the poorest sectors of the country. For example, the farmers are uh, affected by the typhoons and droughts. Uh, The most common product is rice, since we're a rice-eating country, we can't live without rice. Um, And usually farmers uh, only plant rice once or twice a year. So when a typhoon comes and affects their crops, that would mean a loss of income for the entire year. And that often means indebtedness uh, for the farmers. So many of them are actually forced to sell their lands. 
Um, so that worsens the already bad problem of landlessness in the Philippines. So um, imagine that for a country that has been an ag agricultural country for centuries, uh, it is the farmers who are not much supported, especially when it comes to climate adaptation. So for the fisher folk, um, they are also the poorest sector. It's um, the farmers and fisher folk are the poorest sectors in the Philippines. Um, they are affected with the warming oceans. So because of that, there is a declining uh, fisheries production. And also they are affected by typhoons because once there are typhoons, they cannot go out into sea and uh, fish. And um, it is also the indigenous people are affected since they are living in the most um, in the areas where it is very uh, vulnerable to climate change impacts. For example, in forests where there are flash floods. Um, so they are uh, prone to displacement and loss of income. The agricultural sector is not really supported to be climate resilient. So the crops that we're planting now are still very much affected by, for example, droughts. So we have, um, uh, we have uh, replaced our traditional crops or our traditional varieties with this high yielding varieties that are mostly um, GMOs and coming from other countries just because our government wants us to buy these foreign products because of international agreements instead of um, doing our traditional way and using our traditional varieties that are more climate resilient. So that is also a problem, uh, not only for the farmers, but also for food security in the Philippines. So I'm not sure if uh, people have already known, we have the highest price of onions, um, I think, in Asia. But we're an agricultural country. Uh, we have such a high price of rice. And now even simple products like everyday products like eggs are threatened to have um, higher prices because of the lack of support for agriculture. But then again, the government's response is, response is importation instead of support uh, for the agricultural sector. So we already have existing problems of poverty and lack of government uh, foresight and all of these impacts. And then it is compounded by the worsening impacts of climate change. And uh, one of the worst things that are happening is that climate activists or environmental defenders are subject to many kinds of civil political rights violations. For example, um, many indigenous people are opposing large-scale mining and large dams because of the impact on their ecosystems. And also, we understand that it also uh, lessens our uh, adaptation capacity because it causes deforestation. Um, but then, they will be called uh, communists or terrorists, and we call that red tagging. So the government actually has an agency that conducts this red tagging called the National Task Force to End Local Communist Armed Conflict or NTFL-CAP. And the uh, government has also legislated the Anti-Terrorism Act, both of which are being used against defenders. So instead of supporting them, and protecting the environment, they are vilified. And that is often used as a justification for further attacks. Climate um, change issues cannot be addressed without looking at the situation of the 
climate activists or the environmental defenders. They are in, interconnected and interrelated. Super Typhoon Haiyan has made a direct hit on the islands. The typhoon slammed into the Philippines at 4.30 a.m. Friday morning with winds of 195 miles per hour and gusts of 235 miles an hour. That's higher than the winds from Hurricane Sandy and Katrina combined. You attended COP27 uh, and we know that the loss and damage fund was one of the main talking points of the conference. This idea that wealthy countries uh, should pay for damages happening in poorer countries. What are your thoughts on the loss and damage fund? So firstly, I think that the concept of loss and damage is a good step because it's a recognition that um, the uh, poorer countries have actually uh, the lowest uh, lower uh, contribution to um, greenhouse gas emissions, but they're the most affected. So I think that's a good thing because they at least recognize that. And they're actually pointing um, to industrialized countries to have the to take the bigger step or to take action. They have the bigger responsibility to do this. Um, so I think the loss and damage fund uh, is also a positive uh, outcome of the COP. And we should also recognize that this did not just happen. This came from years and years of um, clamor, of actions, um, of different civil society organizations, um, environmental defenders, and uh, marginalized uh, sectors and communities. So it's really because of them that we have these positive outputs. But then again, we think that this loss and damage fund is a little too late. And there's also like a lack of urgency um, in moving forward with this. Um, I say that because it, um, we come from a country with so much uh, experience of uh, disasters caused by um, natural calamities or natural hazards like typhoons. An example is Typhoon Haiyan. Um, it has affected uh, millions of millions of families. It hit the central part of the Philippines. Uh, which are composed of many small islands. It left 11 million homeless. It uh, caused uh, the death of 6,300 uh, people. And even up to now, that happened in 2013, uh, the families still live in temporary shelters. The livelihood has not really been, uh, it hasn't come back to normal. Many people are still uh, unemployed. And... Um, until now, people are experiencing poverty because of the impacts of that typhoon. So it caused uh, storm surges. Many of the people are still missing. They um, they weren't even found after the typhoon. And um, they did not receive any, uh, not enough support for the from the government. So uh, even the cities did not receive much support. What more to the municipalities around it? So um, even up to now, that's like the, the most um, emblematic case we see 
um, because of the impacts of climate change. We've sort of touched on many different areas here. You've talked about how poverty has been exacerbated by climate change, um, the devastating impacts of these natural uh, weather events or these extreme weather events, I should say, um, and also like the onus being on uh, wealthier countries. What do you hope to be the future uh, of climate activism in your community? You know, CEC and uh, many organizations also envision this, not just few organizations working for climate justice, but really an environmental movement all over the country. Uh, we want to have more sectors involved. We, we want to have more community-based organizations involved and as well as more individuals and communities themselves um we want we want to have more of course climate education because that's what we think is important not just climate education in terms of the science of climate change but more on the social economic and political aspect so it is not taught in schools what has caused climate change um it is not much discussed why this climate change you're experiencing now is anthropogenic. Um, of course, the people people cause this or human beings cause this, but it's, it is not all people. It is a significant part of the human population that's being affected by such a small population um, who are who benefited from uh um, these industrial activities just to profit and then again destroy our environment thus resulting in this climate change so I think climate education looking more in-depth looking precisely why this happened in the political context should be um, uh, discussed and popularized and um, I think it is also important to link the discussion of climate change with human rights it's uh it has been a message in cop um in the previous cop stating that there's no climate justice without human rights and i think this is something that we should bring with us every time we talk about climate change of course we want to have uh, a country where there is an enabling environment for public participation and that means mechanisms to protect environmental defenders um, and also uh, scrap the policies that I mentioned earlier that uh, puts harm to them. So um, we also we hope that, you know, the government will let us just speak because what we're saying is not a lies. These are facts. And we are saying what they do not want to hear because they do not want to take action. We see much hope because of the growing movement, especially from the youth, we draw our inspiration from the communities that are directly affected by climate change. And because of that, we see that there is still hope. <laughs> I, I, always want, I always want to end like discussions like this with messages of hope. This episode was produced by Grace Vegasana and me. Thank you to Grace and Leah for their generous time, and I'd really encourage you to check out the work of the Australian Youth Climate Coalition and the Centre for Environmental Concerns. Both organisations will be linked in our show notes at 3cr.org.au forward slash earthmatters. 
I'd also like to thank the Community Broadcasting Foundation for their financial support and the Community Radio Network for distributing the program nationwide. I'm Jacob Gamble. We'll be back next week. <laughs>